So let's, uh, let's start out by reading. We're, uh, we're just going to deal with uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy in Thessalonica. Uh, at this point, they have been basically, for the most part, um, kicked out of Philippi. You remember that uh, Paul and Silas were arrested. They were thrown into prison uh, as they were singing uh, hymns and praying and just bringing glory to the Lord. All the prisoners, uh, they were listening to them. And uh, the earth shook, the doors flung open, um, their, their shackles dropped off of them, and, uh, and it was a Philippian jailer who came to faith because of what he had heard, what he had experienced, and they were still there, and just the peace that they had. So we go from that, but, you know, everyone else wasn't happy, and, uh, and after having been uh, let go of prison... Uh, they went back to Lydia's house, and then from there, they took off, went to Amphipolis, uh, Apollonia, and then now we see them in Thessalonica. So let's read the first, fifth, uh, the first uh, nine verses. That's what we're going to cover this morning. Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father, we want to commit this time into your hands, Lord. We're here by appointment. Lord, it's um, your divine appointment. So I pray, Father, that we would pay attention. Lord, we would desire to hear from you. Give us understanding. May you be the one to teach us all of what we have before us, and knowing how to apply it to our lives to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Radically Changing the World, that's the title of this morning's message. Radically Changing the World. There are people who have had a significant impact on my life. And there are people who have had a significant impact on the world. There are Figures that if I would list out some names, you would know. There are people who have had a significant impact in your life, and if you thought about them, you would probably have a long list. People who have deeply impacted my world include my parents, my siblings, my children, my teachers, my extended family and friends and many others. But then there are people who have not just been a part of forming the person that I am, but have specifically radically changed the trajectory of my life. 
you know, it's just those pivotal moments that you have in your life that you can look back to and say, yeah, there were certain people who were instrumental, who were used mightily, wonderfully in those moments. I can think back, but I won't think back very far. But I do remember the moment when I, I wanted to, I, I remember I've told you about my, my uh, time in the Navy, and uh, I remember going to dive school, though, and I didn't, I didn't really sign up to go to dive school. It was interesting how I got into diving. But I remember going to dive school in Little Creek, Virginia. We hadn't quite classed up just yet. And when you're, you're in a pre-class um, status, they don't really have any kind of regulations that they have to adhere to as far as PT is concerned or physical training. So what they do is the, the, the pre-class class, they try and weed out as many people as possible by really putting them through torture. I, I, I guess that's the best way I could describe it, just torture, right? And I remember almost every day um, seeing my breakfast twice. I would have breakfast, and then I'd go out, and then I'd come back, and I'd see it again, if you catch my drift. So I wasn't too happy with uh, my instructors, which were not quite my official instructors yet, and my proctor, he, he, I was assigned to him. His name is Chief Propster, and uh, John Propster is his name. He was a Navy chief, and he, um, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm done. There's no, I don't even want to go through the class. And so I, I told him, I went to his office and I said, hey, chief, you know, I, I, this isn't for me. Like, this isn't what I wanted to do. I signed up for a desk job, you know, and, and here I am going through this. Like, that, this isn't me. And he says, and he, so he, he encouraged me, Montano, I'll tell you what. Sleep on it. Go sleep on it. And, uh, and if tomorrow morning you come and tell me the very same thing, then I'll go ahead and honor that, and I'll send you out to the fleet. He says, but you don't want to do that. I go, no, I do want to do that. <laughs> I, I'm in misery right now. I'm like, I, I don't want to be tortured one more day, right? And so I remember going back to my bunk, and that night, apparently Chief Propster had sent some of the guys that had been in the fleet before to my bunk, and they surrounded my bunk. I thought, oh, man, what's going on here? <laughs> and uh, they said, hey, listen, we need to talk to you. You know, Chief told us what was going on with you, and we were here to tell you you're, that you're making a big mistake. And they, they all gathered around. They, they told me, hey, listen, the fleet, going out to the fleet as opposed to being a U.S. Navy deep-sea diver is completely different. You don't know because you haven't experienced either one. But you need to go through this. You can make it. If we can make it, you can. They were about to graduate, and they were encouraging me. You have to go through this. You have to do it. You got to desire. You got to want it. You got to get through all the pain. It'll be okay. You'll live. You'll survive. We're all here. So I went back the next day, and I went to Chief Propster, and I told him, I'm staying. Well, I graduated through dive school. And it was quite the proud moment when he took that dive pin and put it on my chest. And the way they tack the, the 
pins on. I don't know. I don't know if they do it now, but they take off the backs of the pins. This, this is just tradition. This is Navy tradition. And for me, this is uh, awesome because you've earned that pin. Well, I didn't know that all the... See, when, when, my, when my proctor came through, he shook my hand. And I, by the way, I made it um, first in class and everything. Yeah. But Chief Propster came and, and he, he reached inside my shirt, my whites. He reached inside and he took my pen and he turned it over and he took off the backs and he put them in my hand. And he, he said, Montano, this is how we tack this on. It's not a little tap either. And he took his fist like this and he went, boom. He says, now you're a diver. Right? Well, that was the first one. We have a whole list of instructors. So the next one comes. And he very gently peeled it away from my chest. And then the next one comes and he goes, congratulations, Montana. And boom, that too. <laughs> Until I got to Chief Mack. Chief Mack was, uh, he was about 6'3". I think he was 6'10 in my eyes, but he was tall. And I think his punch and him knocking me into the wall hurt more than the pins going into my chest. And, and he ended up <laughs> bending one of the pins. So anyway... All of that to say that was pivotal, to say the, the, the least. That was pivotal in my life. You see, I had grown up with, and I've told you guys, you know, there, there's not much in my upbringing that could lead me down a good path. And that was a moment for me to where I found some purpose. I found community. I found something that was good. And Chief Propster was a man that made a big difference in my life. This was, I believe, as I look back, the Lord kind of guiding me down this path to where I am right now. Right now. And we can go on. I have many names here, and there's no possible way that I could go through them all. I think of Chief Nicholson that uh, he put up with my shenanigans in uh, Naval Air Station Lemoore, and uh, Mike Klukas, who led me to the Lord while serving at 32nd Street Naval Station. He was... He was someone who was instrumental in my life. Um, it was then that I came to the Lord in 1992. Um, but a few years later, I, I turned my back on the Lord. And, um, you know, it wasn't until 2002 when I recommitted my life to the Lord. It was at that point that someone else stood in the gap for me and um, walked with me shoulder to shoulder. And that was Peter. My Barnabas. He's a big reason why I stand here today. I remember him taking time with me, helping me learn how to walk with the Lord, be restored. And there was this uh, Sunday evening when we went to day seven at Harvest, and Steve Wilburn, 
was there and he, I recommitted my life to the Lord at that point. People who have been pivotal, where are they in your life? Are you that person? My wife. She's not only been used to have the deepest impact overall, but she's still currently being used by the Lord to have a continuous impact on my life for the glory of God. My wife encourages me in the Lord. She's a great helpmate, and she's the love of my life. I say this, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, this is what the Apostle Paul was. Can you imagine if you were to ask people in Jerusalem, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Crete, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Corinth, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. If you ask the people there, who made the greatest impact on your world? Hopefully, they would mention Paul, Silas, Timothy, and in some places, also Luke. Men who were accused of making such a radical impact on their world that some said that they had actually turned their world upside down. In other words, it was unrecognizable. It was not the same after they had left as when they first arrived. Although the list of places and people is impressive, we need to note and understand that it was all possible by one thing, and that's by God's grace. It was by God himself, through the man who was willing to be used by God. Many years ago, there was a conversation that took place between D.L. Moody and another man. This was before he became uh, the great evangelist. And the man said to Moody, Quote, you know, the world has yet to see what God can do with and through the man who is totally committed to him, close quote. Those words definitely penetrated Moody's heart, and he prayed, Lord, I want to be that man. Throughout the book of Acts are stories of ordinary men, just like you and I, ordinary women, who did extraordinary things because they allowed God to have his way with their lives and in their lives. In the same way, God wants to use you to turn your world upside down for Christ, impacting your circle of influence for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And it starts with you saying, Lord, I want to make a difference. I don't want this world to turn me upside down. I want to be used to turn it upside down, to have a deep impact and so we should say, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, we will see how a man who was totally committed to God was used by God to lead many people to salvation. And so we see churches born in various places throughout the world in the lives of many people and families impacted even still today. Are you willing to be used by God to change lives to the glory of God? Be encouraged this morning. Because if people like Paul and Silas and Timothy and 
And then as I mentioned, some other names. If, if God can use those people, us, he can truly use anyone. And he desires to use anyone. We're going to see how it is. And it's just one thing and within it many. How it was that Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians. And we'll see how it was that that made an impact in their lives. So again, in verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, after having been in Philippi for a couple weeks, seeing Lydia and her household after they had been let out of prison, they left from Philippi and made their way to Thessalonica. So they traveled, the, the, the distance between the two, between Philippi and Thessalonica is 100 miles. So this is at least a three-day trip on foot. You know, uh, they didn't have, you know, the luxury of vehicles at that point, and so 100 miles wasn't done in just a short time. It was it was at least a three-day trip. Now, Thessalonica, even still today, is a large city. It's a city of commerce. The majority of it was destroyed but has been rebuilt. It was destroyed by fire in 1917, but it has been rebuilt. A lot of the ruins are still there, and you can go and visit them still today. Again, Thessalonica is, is still just a bustling city with lots of people, lots of commerce. Now, Paul, in the midst of all of that, did find a synagogue. He didn't find one in Philippi. Remember that there, wasn't enough, there weren't even enough Jewish men to form a synagogue, which it requires 10. But here in Thessalonica, it's different. He went into the city and he found a synagogue. As was his custom, as we read, he went into the synagogue on three consecutive Sabbaths and reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures regarding Christ. As Paul reasoned with the Jews, others were watching, others were listening, and many came to faith. It says, some Jews, but a great many of the devout Greeks. In other words, devout Greeks uh, were God-fearing Greeks, kind of like the, uh, the Roman centurion that we learned about. He was a God-fearing man, the one that Peter was sent to um, so it was in that like manner that we have these God-fearing Greeks here in Thessalonica. And then it mentions here that many of the leading women, which means prominent, influential women, women who were, uh, you know, had, had uh, powerful positions, you could say, within the city, they were coming to the Lord, a great many of them, not a few, but many of them. I want to point out what Paul did here in how he did it regarding the work of an, uh, of an evangelist, doing the work of evangelism. You know, there's something that for us, we are commanded to do the work of an evangelist, and so we should be prepared to do that very thing as God presents us with opportunities, correct? If we're commanded to do something, then we should be prepared to follow through with whatever it is that the Lord has for us. Number one, he reasoned from the scriptures. In other words, Paul supported what he was saying about Jesus with Scripture and helped the people form judgments based on a process of logic. Like he brought them through. He explained it to them. He reasoned with them. By the way, reasoning also is, is dialogue. So it wasn't just Paul preaching to them, like this is what it is. 
But if you've ever uh, seen a picture, pull up a picture at some point, not now, but pull up a picture of, of an actual synagogue. And some are smaller than others, but you could say it's the size of this room if it was all open, perhaps a little smaller, some are smaller, has some pillars, it has seats all the way around. It has in the middle, you could say, a pulpit, and that's where the reading and, and also the teaching comes from. But it's not very large, so the pulpit would be right in the middle right here. There would be a small area in the back. There would be columns along both sides of the room uh, to uh, hold up the, the roof, and it has walls and windows, and, but it has like bleacher seating along the sides of the walls. And it was there that Paul was accustomed to go and reason. So you could imagine, you can picture Paul reading scripture and then explaining it. And then having some of the men just ask questions like, okay, so how can that be the Christ? And him explaining and bringing them through that. That's what he was doing with them. And in that, number two, he explained and proved the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul gave an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, bringing clarity to Jesus and describing him in detail according to Scripture. Paul was revealing facts that are found in the very Scripture that they had already known, having learned from the time that they were young. Friday, as we spent some time at uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College in Sanada, a teacher there by the name of Roberto, was asked what his favorite book of the Bible to teach was. Remember that? Um, so we, we asked him, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So what, I was thinking, what is his favorite book to teach? You know, because normally teachers have a, they have a book, right? Like Book of Acts or I don't know, whatever it is. He said, yeah, um, I I have a favorite book, but then I teach another book, and then I, that's my favorite book to teach, and then I teach another book, and that's my favorite book to teach. And so he was talking like that. But um, he said that he finally did say a book. And to me, it was kind of shocking. At the same time, it wasn't shocking because when I was, I remember asking another pastor, you know, when you go through the book of Leviticus, you know, uh, how was that for you? And he says, oh, I, I, I didn't teach through Leviticus. You know, you can't really teach through Leviticus. And I'm like, yeah, yeah you can't. <laughs> like, not Calvary Chapel. You know, we teach line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book. But I was kind of just, uh, of course, just uh, kind of disappointed with that, that answer. But definitely not, not, uh, not Robert. He said, at the moment, he said, Leviticus. Do you guys ever skip over Leviticus? <laughs> we love to teach Leviticus. Leviticus is a book on holiness, consecration. But it's a book that gives specific instruction to the Jews on how to live their lives to the glory of God as they were going into the promised land. To be self-governed. With good morals that had to do with the law of God, and God kept them in that way. How to conduct themselves in the offering of their offerings. It's a book of consecration, and it's a book that explains how to enjoy a proper relationship with God through sacrifice and holiness. That, that might do us good. For us as a church, we need to know how to conduct ourselves as we come and, and we 
give an offering to the Lord. You know, like I sat there, um, you know, after the second song, Ray prays, and it's a time for the offering, and I know the bag isn't passed around or anything like that, um, but what we've uh, changed to is doing it all online. And what I'll do now is I'll grab my, my, uh, my phone, and I'll go, and I have it saved as refuge giving, and I'll put in there, this is my time to give, and I'll put in the amount, and I'll send it off, and, uh, and I give it to the, the work of the Lord here, whatever he wants to do. It's all online, so it's different. But it's not just the act of giving. It's like, where's your heart in giving? And that's the thing that the Lord through Leviticus, is preparing the worshiper to worship in a manner that is fitting for the worshiper to worship in. There is a prescribed way in which we are to come to the Lord. He lays it all out in the Word of God. It's not just flippantly. It's not just, well, I'm here, you know. We're here. And what do you have to give to me? It's not like that. Because if the worshiper is prepared... He comes and he sits down or he stands up or he kneels. He lifts up his hands or he gives the offering. Because he's rejoicing the Lord, celebrating him because of the love that he was first demonstrated through Jesus Christ to him in his life. And this is just all a response. I'm not here to take. I'm here to give. As I receive, so I give out. And I'm here to rejoice in the Lord. I'm basically here as we're going through the word to, yes, I'm receiving the word, but I'm receiving it not just so that I could, you know, puff up with knowledge, but that so I could be a better understanding of who the Lord is and how it is that I could give him out to more people, the gospel. And so this man, Robert, this teacher, he was talking about the fact that it is a book of consecration and it is a book uh, that explains how to enjoy a proper relationship with the Lord through sacrifices and holiness, both of which we know was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what brought the Bible alive to Robert, He said that as soon as he was shown how every, every book of the Bible speaks of Jesus, it went from a book that was black and white to a book that just came alive. It was in color. Like you could see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. Every book of the Bible, Jesus. If you just find Jesus in the midst of it all, it'll all make sense. It'll all come together. And he gets excited about his teaching. We sat in a, just a portion of... Of, of his one of his classes, and you could see the passion that he had, not just to teach, but to teach Christ. When Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after having resurrected from the grave, they, not knowing that at the time it was the resurrected Jesus, Jesus explained to them about himself from the scriptures. In Acts chapter 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses... I'm sorry, Luke. These are both Luke. So Luke 24, 27 says, At the beginning with Moses um, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And just a few verses later, after Jesus had made himself known to them, and then he 
disappeared, they said to each other in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This, this is the very same thing that the Apostle Paul was doing with the Jews in Thessalonica and with the Gentiles in Thessalonica and with the leading women in, in Thessalonica. He was doing the very same thing. He was opening up the scriptures and by doing so, he was explaining to them where it is that Jesus is in scripture and how he was fulfilled and how he was crucified on the cross, how he had died, been buried, three days later resurrected from the grave. It's all there. This is the very same thing that he was doing. Did Paul share Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Micah 5.2, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, or maybe Isaiah 11? No, maybe Isaiah 53. I'm thinking Paul went through all of these and many more to show them Christ within the pages of Scripture. Oh, the moment, it's beautiful. I know the moment I started going through the Old Testament, started going through, and as you understand and see Christ in it all, it's just like, you can't wait to get back to the Old Testament. I know some, some people, it's like, oh, no, it's just, I just stick with the New Testament. Like, oh, you're missing out. You got to go back to the Old Testament. You got to work through it. This is an encouragement for you and I to study and become familiar with the scriptures so that we too will be able to show others where the Bible addresses Christ throughout, through and through, what the Bible addresses in its entirety and who it reveals and why Jesus is revealed through and through. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Because Paul was seeing people come to faith through his work, and others were experiencing that, the Jews were jealous. And these men stirred up other men and convinced them that Paul was doing something very evil, even though he was doing something very good. It says here in verse, uh, let's go back to verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in, a, in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so this is what they were doing. So they formed a mob. They stormed Jason's home, thinking that perhaps they you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy were all there, and they, they couldn't find them. They didn't, they didn't uh, see them within the home. And so what they did was they, they, grab, they grabbed Jason, and they grabbed all of the new brethren, and they dragged them before the authorities because they were thinking, you're harboring, you're harboring an evil man. So they took him to the authorities. Can you imagine being rushed like this and accused of these things because you're associated with a, with a pastor and a church planter who has led you to Christ? Let's say, let's say you're brand new in Christ. 
And, and you're, you're just hanging out with Jason. Like, J- Jason, he's a new believer. We're all new believers in the house. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they were all here, but, they, you know, they went out to grab a burger. And then, but during that time, you have this mob that kind of forms up outside the home. And, and then they, they're, like, demanding, where's Paul? Where's Silas? Where's Timothy? And, and they're, they're mad. They're a mob. This is, this is a peaceful protest. And, and at that moment, what, what are you thinking? I, I just, I like putting myself in their shoes. Because I'm thinking, I, I, hey, Jason, bro, I didn't sign up for this. These guys, are, these guys are serious out there, right? These guys are serious out there. God bless Jason. Because it doesn't look like they, they back down. They didn't deny any their, their faith. They didn't do anything other than they went with the men. They went before the magistrates, the authorities. And, um, and all Jason did was he, he, didn't, he didn't say anything. What would you, you, you wouldn't throw your, you, you wouldn't throw your pastor on the, under the bus, would you? Oh, he's at the, he's at in and out He's down there. You can find him down there. They, they didn't. They didn't. In fact, Jason put down a deposit. He says, you know, this is, this is a security deposit. This is to assure that no, nothing else will, like, rise up, right? That's what that was. When persecution comes your way, what are you going to do as Christians? You better start thinking about it because it's coming. We've only gotten just a little little scratch on the surface. There's nothing. Just wait till more comes. What's going to drive you? Because fear and faith cannot live in the same person. Think about that. Okay? Jason and the others weren't moved much. And they were new believers. They held their ground and simply offered up a security ensuring that the, to the authorities that there would be no insurrection. Because that was not what Paul was doing or what the gospel is all about. So Jason's like, there's gonna, like for us, we're no, we're, there's no insurrection from us. But I also want to note what these men said about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Check this out. Verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. And then look at the uh, end of verse 7. It says, um, you know, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Those two things just, to me, really popped out. What they were, te- they were testifying. That's what they were doing before the magistrates. So they were testifying uh, of what these men believed and what they had done. They were testifying that these men, in the course of three weeks, had impacted the people in Thessalonica to the point to where they were unrecognizable. Things were changing, and we don't like it. <laughs> you know, um, I, I know there were, there were people in my life that were telling me as I was changing in the Lord, because I came to the Lord, and you know, some things just are not of the Lord, so yeah, I'm not going to participate in those things. And there were some people in my life that said, I don't like this role. 
Like, you're no fun anymore. I, I don't like it. And they told me, I don't like this one. Bring back the old one. I'm like, nope, he's dead. In a very real way. But they were also testifying of one other thing that would make the other one possible. They were testifying of the fact that Christians speak of another king. These Christians, these Christ followers, they speak of another king. Caesar, you're king, but they're bringing up another king. Oh, another ruler. Another source of authority. Oh, no, 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 not another source. The preeminent source of authority. Oh, he, if he is king, he's ruler. Not of some, but of all. Not of a little, partial, but of the whole person. Is that where you're at? Maybe that's why you're having such a difficult time. Because you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Or you think you have it with God. And it doesn't work that way. There's such anxiety that comes up. There's worry. There's, there's still burdens. There, you don't know that peace that surpasses all understanding. You don't know why things are just like you're not making wise decisions because you're not, you're not counseling with the Lord. You're not allowing him to govern your thoughts and your life and you know the way you are in life. You're not allowing him to because he's not your king. These people in Thessalonica, they knew. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're guilty. They have another king. I know they have another king because they keep talking about another king and what they do, the way they live their lives, they are ruled by someone else. And it's not you, Caesar. Who's ruling you? Because the question for each and every one of us, and it's a question that I was asking myself, would we be guilty of the very same accusations? Is this true of you? Last week, we spent just a moment and I had asked anyone who would like to recommit their lives to the Lord, now's the time. Don't, 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 don't wait till tomorrow. Truly, sincerely, genuinely recommit your life to the Lord if that's what you need to do. If you need to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you need to come, you've never surrendered your heart to Christ, now's the moment. And we went through that every Sunday, every Every time we come together, that's all, that offer is always on the table because uh, God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so that's our heart's desire also. That's my heart's desire. I, I don't want anyone to wait till tomorrow to be saved. Today's the day of salvation, this very moment. But perhaps there's been, there are other people, even here right now, that did not take that stand, that you need to recommit your life to the Lord that you need to come to that place of salvation. You don't even know him. You haven't been, been filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't know what it means to walk with the Lord. Perhaps this, this moment, this morning, is that, that moment to where you completely surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You come to know him. And that's just the beginning of your walk with him, your life with him. But one day, you will see him in all of his glory. Because Jesus went to the cross to die for you to pay for your sins, past, present, and future. And the moment you surrender your life to him, he, is, he assures you of forever being with him, 
forgiving you of all of your sins and giving you the hope of eternity in his glory. Would you be known as Jesus being your king? In closing, I want to ask this. Are you allowing yourself to be used by Jesus to have an internal, eternal impact on others? Number one, you know, for those of you who are Christians who, are, who have been walking with the Lord, are you allowing the Lord to use you to have an eternal impact on others? Secondly, do you say Jesus is king? And is he? Is he truly? Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians and many came to faith. They were saved. And the, their world was forever impacted. It was changed. Somebody shared the gospel with D.L. Moody. And his life was used to lead many people to salvation in Christ. Both Paul and D.L. Moody were used by the Lord to radically change the world of many. But only because their lives had been radically changed by Jesus first. You can be used to radically change others around you for the glory of Jesus and their eternal benefit. Learn to reason from the scriptures, explaining and proving what you have come to believe and know personally. This will both increase your faith and you will see the faith of others increase around you. Go out, let's go out and radically change the world of the people around us to the glory of God and for their blessing, their forgiveness, seeing them come to the grace of the Lord through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So I pray that for us. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for just another reminder of the love that you have for us, how it is that you use common men like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and many others. Lord, it was just, these are just examples of men who were willing to be used by you. And yet, Lord, we're still feeling the impact today. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that if there was conviction even this morning, Lord, for someone who's lukewarm, who's just maybe plain church, Lord, that this moment would be a, a moment of recommitting their lives to you, that they truly, genuinely could say, oh, Jesus, King Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my authority, and I, I desire to walk with you. That today, this very moment would be a moment of re recommitting their lives to you. And I pray, do ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would simply ask for your forgiveness, repenting of their sins, and ask you to be Lord and Savior, believing that Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins, was buried three days later, rose from the grave, and today sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I, for us. So, Lord, I pray, Father, that this would be a day of surrender, a committal, devotion, and an awareness of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.